Attention, please. Eastern Airlines Flight 19, now ready for departure. Welcome aboard the Walt Disney World Express Monorail. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we're entering the vacation kingdom of the world. There's enough land here to hold all of the ideas and plans we could possibly imagine. We call it Epcot. Will be our experimental prototype city of tomorrow. Welcome to another episode of the Retro Disney World Podcast. Taking you back to the vacation kingdom of the world. The way it was and the way it is in your memories. All right, welcome to another episode of the Retro Disney World Podcast. This is episode 41. We'll be taking you back to the Fort Wilderness Railroad. I'm your host, Todd McCartney, and sitting in with me as always is Mr. J.T. Couser from Ohio. How are you doing tonight, J.T.? Doing good. How are you, Todd? Not too bad. Summer is here. It's nice and warm. Yeah, buddy. Yeah. And as well, we've got Mr. Hal Bowers from Tampa, Florida. How are you doing tonight, Hal? Aloha, everyone. How's it going? It's going good. A little rain tonight. A little misty. Uh, getting a little, little cooler, perhaps. We'll see. You got to keep that Florida humidity up somehow. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it's so vital. That's right. And uh, from the city of brotherly love, Mr. Brian P. Miles. How are you doing tonight, Brian? Greetings and all aboard to all of you from Philadelphia. Good all aboard. I like that. I like that. So. Well, before we dive into the uh, topic of this month, which, as we mentioned, is the Fort Wilderness Railroad, we've got a jam-packed episode here. Not only do we have a lot to talk about about the railroad, we've got prizes to give away this month. And uh, But as always, we start with some comments and corrections. One of the things that somebody had mentioned was uh, the potential of a third, mysterious third floor in the contemporary. Uh, Erica Rose wrote in and said, anyone can go up there with a key uh, or magic band access at the fitness centers up there. And she said the ceiling is quite low. Brian, you were going to try to hop up there, I think, uh, on your past trip. I, I don't recall if you made it up there or not. I, I didn't make it up there, but I can confirm there is a third floor. It is there. <laughs> it's between the second and fourth floors. Imagine that. <laughs> and uh, and there are some offices and other stuff up there as well. But it's all functional stuff, you know, in addition to the fitness center that's up there. There's no, there's no rooms there. So we'll have to see. I'll have to try and make it up there. It's safe to say it's not not like advertised, like it's just, you know, it's there, but it's not like that you you don't get drawn to it like the main lobby. Right. I mean, they're not directing you to it because there's no reason for you to be there Um, unless 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 there's a reason for you to be there. Justin Ponzi told us that the reason that the ceiling is lower there, especially in the west side and elevator lobby, is because the monorail beamway infrastructure takes up a lot of that space. Right. Oh, right. Look at that. Oh. There is that. also a um, uh, a deck up there on the third or fourth floor uh, that is used for private functions, like to watch wishes and things like that, because they do use it for the um, the the dinner around the monorail loop that they sell. Mm-hmm. Uh, ah. you can, so that you start in the contemporary, you go to the Polynesian the Grand Floridian for dinner, and then they bring you back to the Contemporary for dessert uh, out on this little platform. Mm, like veranda. you know, it's, it's a, yeah, it's like a it's like a little veranda up there, uh, but it's not at the top of the world up on the fifteenth floor. You're at like the fourth floor. So there's that's that may be off of the third or fourth floor. I'm not sure which. Hmm. All right. Well, we're more investigation. We've got to see it for ourselves now. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> we'll Sounds like it. a reason for a trip. That's right. 
All right. Now, as uh, many of you recall, last month was the Skyway and Swan Boat episode. And um, we had mentioned uh, how you did some research and you said that the uh, the, the turn in Tomorrowland uh, between, in the speedway of the Skyway was uh, 80 degrees. Uh, I had mentioned that Birnbaum claimed it was 90. But we got a little technical here. We got out our uh, trusty electronic protractors, overlaid it on an, some aerial photography, and found out that it uh, it's really more of a 60-degree turn. So I'm not too sure where all these 80s and 90s came from. <laughs> <laughs> but it w- still was the first of its kind in, in, in the country. So the other interesting thing is that we really didn't explain the turn very well last month. Um, we talked about how you would um, really have to be on your game and, and make sure you might have to slow the carts down. What uh, we'll have a video that we'll tweet out so you can take a look at because we found some video afterwards of the complete ride in both directions, which somebody had uh, did did some video on. Um, but what would actually happen in that turn is that the Skyway cable car would come off of the cable and be put onto a transfer track, just like it did in the stations during load and unload. The momentum would carry you around, and that's how I think Brian was pointing out that if it, it could get stuck if it didn't have enough momentum, the cable itself one around the big wheels while you came off and the, mm. the, the person was there to make sure that you the momentum of you coming off the cable going onto this temporary track if you will had enough to bring you around the curve and sync back up with the cable um, because at that time there was no way to take that turn while still attached to the cable so that's uh that's how that that turn worked but I, there was a from our episode, there's a Facebook group that shared one of our episode posts, and they started going back and forth with some great cast member stories. And I know how you had a bunch of them last month, right, with all the different things that people would do. And Oh, we, yeah. Yeah, we, we talked about them smoking marijuana, and uh, apparently the cast m- m- member name for the attraction was the Columbian Express. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they said that the wisdom was to start at the halfway point. So if, so if someone saw you up there... Going the other way, you'd be off the ride and gone before they could exit and report. Not that we encourage behavior like that. That's right. Uh, He said also, too, this is another person posting that they knew a cast member who bought to work a huge 12-inch bolt from home, uh, and he stood at the transition spot holding the bolt, looking up at the cable and wheels (laughs) and scratching his head (laughs) as as if the bolt fell out, (laughs) which is great. Um, And also, too... um, one morning before the park opened, apparently a supervisor got on a, the ride, and uh, this person shut the ride down with him up there and ran to ah. the cafeteria for breakfast. <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> he says, I will protect the names of, of, of the uh, guilty until my death. So a fair number of great cast member stories out there. So uh, we won't mention names, but thank you for sharing in that thread. So thanks to all those out there. So let's move on to listener mail. JT, you got a couple people that uh, wrote in as always this month. Yes, I do. Um, First off, I want to give, I feel like I'm getting more and more of these. We're getting more and more of these of the I just found you, and I am listening to every episode. And I, you know, um, first off, like we've said all the time, bear with us on the early episodes. There, our quality has gone up. I think every episode as we've moved on. But then uh, the other thing too is you can tell in the early episodes our, our rhythm wasn't there like it is now. So we we've got that timing down almost now. So, um, but yeah, that's it's it's happening more and more. So uh, welcome if you're a, a binge listener. All right, so first one I have here is from Catherine. She says, Hi, guys. 
I was wondering if you've ever talked about some of the former shops on Main Street. The one I used to remember going to, I believe, was called the Market House. They used to sell these really unique mini jelly jars. I believe Smuckers was a sponsor of them. Does anybody recall the Market House? Well, she's right, because the Market House on Main Street, its I believe it's the very first building once you crossed Center Street on the right-hand side. Right. And yes, it was sponsored by Smuckers, and there was a co-sponsor to it at some earlier point. I can't remember who it is off the top of my head. But yes, they had jams and jellies in there. And one of the things that I used to really love about the Market House there is they had an old-fashioned telephone on the wall. And uh, you would go over and pick up the phone. It was that kind that was kind of like the... Uh, the tall vertical box with the two mm-hmm. bells on and it the and bell, the little yeah. yeah yeah so if if you picked up the the earpiece and put it to your ear there was actually a recording in there that would run on oh. a loop yeah. Um, yeah. talking about party line telephones so that that is in what is the present day chapeau the hat store and yep. the phone is still there and, and it works <laughs> and that function still exists so if you want to feel like what it was like to be there in in 1971 you can go in there and pick the phone up and there's still that conversation of the two women talking to each other on the party line and uh you can listen in um i will also say that a lot of those shops since we're on the topic when they opened walt disney world there were a lot of shops on main street that were similar to shops in disneyland where they did sell jams and jellies and greeting cards and clocks and things like that. Uh, The difference over time, I think, is they developed an understanding of their Florida park versus their California park is that the people who went to the California park when they left their park, they drove home. And so it was a normal thing to pick up jams, jellies, or the first <laughs> or the first year when the park was opened, the Wizard of Bras was there on Main Street. And you might right. pick up some hosiery or something like that and on your way out of the park and uh, the Hills Brothers Coffee Company, you know, you'd pick up a, a bag of coffee beans and stuff at Disneyland. It's obviously different in Florida where people were coming there, not necessarily on a day trip from somewhere in Florida. Most of the people were coming from somewhere else in the country. And you didn't really want to pick up your jams and jellies and a loaf of bread on your way out of the Magic Kingdom <laughs> to go back to your hotel. <laughs> Come on, it was a great place to shop for greeting cards because you never know when you might need. That's right. You know, to, to buy birthday cards. <laughs> get, for the get that sympathy card after you just had a great <laughs> yeah. day. I'll, I'll I'll agree with you, Brian, and I'll go one higher than that because uh, in some of the books I've been reading about the older Walt Disney World management, a lot of the philosophy of the stores in uh, in the Magic Kingdom was that it was as much a part of the show as the rides were. The merchandise, it was not a requirement that it make a lot of money. Uh, in fact, things like the uh, the old antique shop, it, like, it cost more to buy the antiques and fill it with antiques than they ever sold in there. Uh, but the person that ran it, and I, and I want to say it was Jack Olson, but I'm not positive right now off the top of my head, um, he considered that part of the entertainment. And so they they didn't care if they sold a ton of stuff or not. And and once he died and, and other people came in from the Disney store organization to, to run the shops on Main Street, you saw a very different philosophy where it was, you know, let's get as much out of every, you know, square inch of retail space. They treated it like they did in, in real retail right. and not in this sort of like entertainment retail. You'll also remember when we did the Lake Buena Vista Village episode, we talked about cast members telling us that they utilize that with the antique shops and the furniture and all of that. Uh, 
the managers began to figure out in the mid seventies when they were furnishing their homes down there <laughs> that they could order these specialty items to put in the shop and then go in and buy them at like their 50% employee discount. So they would buy these thousand dollar antiques and get them for half price by going in and buying them themselves once they were in the shops. So, you know, it was one of the many reasons the company at times struggled financially was <laughs> that there were people <laughs> taking advantage of them. Yeah. It seems absurd today that anybody would allow either one of those two things that happened. But back then, it was just a different philosophy. Right. That's right. Right. Along the lines of that of that party line phone, by the way, the, uh, you know, that being one of the original uh, leftover features and, and um, theme setting, there is still another one that is on uh, what remains of East Center Street. If you walk in there as far as you can go and listen carefully, every now and then you'll hear a dance lesson up on the second floor commence with a piano and tapping and different things. Um, so that's kind of a neat something else that you can go kind of check out that's a, one of those hidden features of, uh, of Main Street. Um, and if you uh, would like to, you're finding that phone, uh, send us a tweet at RetroWDW of yourself using that phone. That would be super awesome. So. <laughs> right. I, I would really like you to take a video of yourself up on the third floor of the Contemporary walking around and tweet there or Facebook it that out. One too. We need some people out on the street, you know, just getting, right. us, getting us those images. All right. So thank you, Catherine. Uh, appreciate that email. Next one. Uh, this one I thought was pretty cool. Probably guide some some future episodes and things was from our friend Anthony. Anthony sent us an email. He says, hi, I'm a former seasonal cast member from Future World at Epcot. Uh, he worked there from 89 to 93. And he worked on the land, uh, World of Motions, Horizons, and Spaceship Earth. And he uh, kind of shared some insight with us, some different uh, operational procedures and things like that that uh, were pretty cool. So I thought he uh, deserved a shout-out just for uh, sending us that uh, insight. So Yeah, some great manuals. I started flipping through it, and they've an- i, I got to go through more in detail. And uh, I think some of them might even answer some questions that we had in the past and discussed on uh, previous episodes. So as we go through those and figure them out, it'd be awesome. So appreciate it, Anthony. All right, uh, final email was from Brent. Brent said, uh, Gentlemen, first off, great show. I was looking for a new show to accompany me on a recent road trip. I searched for the word retro in his podcast app, and our show turned up. Disney is definitely outside of his wheel well, so we thought as uh, he favorites uh, retro video arcades and pinball shows, he'd give us a try. Uh, the first show we hit up was the episode 40 Skywind Swan Boats. Not only did it hook me, but it filled in a gap of lingering memory that I've carried for years. Um, let's see. He had a fleeting memory of a gondola ride. Uh, we visited several East Coast parks in my youth. While I was uh, had a solid image in my mind, he could not place it at a particular park. He now knows it's the WDW Skyway. So uh, Brent went on to tell us uh, he brought up the toy muskets which we sort of had an email conversation back and forth and uh i myself had one from fort wilderness it was the dual barrel musket did you guys have any of those are you guys too old to get those i I had the single fire fire single fire yeah it's in my video of me uh, or the film from 1980 i'm playing around with it firing at my dad on the camera (laughs) shooting your father (laughs) shooting my father you know which it did cap gun i had a cap gun version at some point i can't remember if it was the single or double but from pirates. Yeah. I, I got two of the rifles for my nephew when I took him when he was 10 about, well, he's 22 now, so 12 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, I took him and he wasn't satisfied with one. He had to buy two. 
which I also then left in the rental car at the airport and had to pay them to mail them to me. So, no way. Yeah, so those two things cost me like $100 all told by the time they got back to Pen- <laughs> Pennsylvania. Um, oh, that's interesting. And you can't get those anymore, can you? No, They're they gone. took them out of the parks. To- so I thought, yeah, because I had one of the last ones without the orange cap. Mine was, you know, very yeah. dangerous. And then, then they added the orange caps and they started coloring the... The, uh, the stock on them, reds and blues and pinks and different colors, and then just gone altogether. So, um, Well, Brent, thank you for your email. I love it. He ended with sent from Roy's cabin via hacked Communicore roller coaster terminal. So very <laughs> that, that absolutely uh, means he's been listening to more than just that first episode. So we appreciate right. that. I will also say listener now. eventually, uh-huh. Brent, we'll get to episodes about the Main Street Arcade and the Fiesta Fun Center, and you won't want to miss either one of those. That's right. Fiesta fun. So if you'd uh, like your message or a comment or anything to maybe end up on the show or you just want to drop us a line, podcast at RetroWDW.com. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Uh, We're on there as well. And if you shoot us a message, those could also get on the show as well. So thank you again. All right. Well, it's time for this month's Audio Rewind. And I'll tell you what, we're giving away a lot of stuff this month. This is a big, big month. Before we get to the prize pot and everything, uh, we need to give away Tammy Tucky's album, You'll Find Me on Main Street, to the two winners. We uh, A couple episodes ago, we, we interviewed Tammy on a special mini episode, and uh, we asked those on Facebook and Twitter to send in an entry, and we would pick a winner from each. And I'm happy to announce that Chris, Lo- Chris Lopresto and, uh, is our Facebook winner, and Anna B., is our Twitter winner. So congratulations. We'll get in touch with each of you and get you a copy of You'll Find Me on Main Street by Tammy Tucky. So congratulations to both of you. All right. Well, it's time for this month's Audio Rewind. Uh, So now that we've given those away, uh, hey, you guys pick up on this. JT, this one is right up your alley. You should remember this. I I, kind of bent the rules here a little bit with with our 25-year rule. Did Did you pick it up? Uh, I kind of forget what it is because I listened right when it came out like a month ago. So All right. I need well, a fair refresher. Enough. Let's take another listen and see if you can guess. All right. If you guess Remember the Magic, that's correct. That's from the 25th anniversary in 1996. And uh, JT, you remember that one, right? Oh, I remember it and the magic. I was yeah. there. That's right. I lived it, Dottie. And actually, <laughs> and that uh, that song is also on Tammy Tucky's album. Indeed, That's it right. is. Yeah, she did that one. So, uh, so we do have a winner. So, congratulations to Kristen Rapold. You'll be receiving the Mouse Tales book. So, we'll get that out to you. And um, we need a prize for this month. Do you guys have anything to add in? Oh, we've got them? one. We've got. We got one. one? Yes. What do you got, Brian? Have another book this month. For you Epcot Center fans, I have the Epcot Explorers Encyclopedia we are going to send out to the listener who submits the correct answer and knows what this is. All right. If you think you know the answer to this month's Audio Rewind, send your guesses to podcast at RetroWDW.com. All entries must be received by July 16th, 2018. We'll pick one random winner from all correct entries to win the prize. And no matter if you're right or wrong, you will get entered into our uh, twice yearly giant prize pot drawing. And this month is time to pull a winner for the big prize pot for oh the boy. first half of 2018. Yes. I'm now, excited. 
Before we get to the rundown here, JT, tell the listeners a little bit how we picked the numbers for the winner the last couple times we've done this. This is the third big prize third, pot we Third picked. iteration. We did it uh, last year at this time, the one-year anniversary of the first prize pot. We did one last winter at the end of the year, and now this is the third uh, half-year prize pot giveaway. First, right. the first one was... Uh, Fired up the old uh, PC system. I think the RAM blew. I don't remember what actually yeah, something happened. happened. It, something it, happened because it barely squeaked out a number, and then that's all <laughs> we got. So we moved a little bit like lower tech. Last uh, in the winter, we had the big wheel with the the leather flapper hitting yeah. the, the pins, and it was like uh, you know the the showcase showdown. But now, what happened cool. to that one? Uh, that one, I think water damage. Cause I went to spin it. It just like the bearings are fused. It, I, and I don't know where to get a bearing that big to replace uh, it this short notice. So I, I f- went in the attic, yep. found the old, uh, those, those big clear, like, uh, you know, they look like jars where they, yep. they, they, they put the ping pong balls in and we, we run it, we, we run it full speed. Just it, they bounce around and then it, it shoots up that one little tube and we get the number, the one that, that comes out the top. So, awesome. All right, so before we f- you fire up the, the lotto ball machine, bingo yes. machine ball, uh, wh- why don't we run down the prize pot? All right. Uh, all right, so for this prize pot, if your ping pong ball gets picked, we have uh, from January the Epcot posters, from February the super fancy retro WDW hat and the McFarkle Christmas card, from March the Epcot coin slash medallion in honor of the Olympics. Mm-hmm. From April the Air Force One pin for our pin traders. For May the Epcot and WDW pennants. And from our June episode, the last one, the Bob Gurr DVD. And I believe that is signed, that's, isn't it? Yeah, that's correct. So you're that's getting a correct. Bob Gurr autograph here if your ping pong ball is uh, one of the, the random. And I know we have quite a few in there. That's right. Yeah, there's... there's uh, over 300 balls 300 is, ping pong balls, balls. bouncing that, that is yeah. a lot of balls yeah, yeah a, lot of, a lot of balls <laughs> w- worse odds than the nba draft here so yeah. <laughs> all right jt well let's let's fire up the machine here it's fired up here we go here i'm flo- throwing the switch all right uh boy there's a lot going on in there there's i think we've, we've overloaded it but uh here, <laughs> here it here, comes here it comes it's it's blowing up the, it's going down it's like a squiggly tube it's coming out to the end here and our number is 211. 211. 211. 211. Who is, is that? Congratulations to Rick Webster. Rick Webster. Congratulations. Right, Rick. You won the whole Man, thing. The whole... I love his dictionary. Yeah. <laughs> and, and his 80s sitcom. I love that too. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's right. Rick, man, you you hit hit the jackpot here. I think that's the last run for the ping pong ball machine. This stuff is just so old, but good job, Rick. Way to so be. So JT will figure out a new way uh, to pick the December winner. But congratulations, Rick. We'll, uh, we'll get these prizes out to you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for your entry. So again, if you know the answer, this month's audio rewind, send your guesses to podcast at retrowdw.com. And uh, get your entry in again. If it's whether it's right or wrong, we're going to put it into the new prize pot. And in order to do that, we need an item to drop in the prize pot to kick it off. And uh, JT's motioning here. Uh, do you have something to add, JT? <laughs> I do. I mean, I'm sure. I, I feel like we should make this one like really good going into Christmas, like because I got I got some stuff to add. This. All right. This what time. do you got? All right. So first off, I'm going to add. This is from right in my like I said my wheel wheel well the 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 early '90s. Uh, the I have that that sewing kit I was showing you guys. It is a a housekeeping. You know they put it there with your soaps and that. Yeah, and it's got the Mickey on there. It's from early '90s. It's an unused sewing kit. I have to start. 
Nice. It was nice. one of the in-room amenities that they yes. offered with your... I can't tell you how many times I've been at a Disney resort and I'm like, if there was only some way for me to sew. I right. know, because they cut those and out of the budget. Now we don't have I them. Know. Ah, now yeah, I know. Can I, can I can't sew unless I bring my own sewing kit with me And the me fact now. that you had green thread, just in case you had a green jacket or some green plaid or something like that, you, you had all the colors to... Well, that's a given. Exactly. Exactly. That's Safety all, that's pins. That's all I everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's a true. Spare button. That's... I mean, it was just all in there. You could pop your blisters with it, anything. <laughs> <laughs> Again, if you think you know the answer to this month's Audio Rewind, send your guesses to podcast at retroww.com. Congratulations again to Rick Webster, and uh, we'll pick another prize pod winner in December. All right, guys, well, it's time to get into our main topic, which is the Fort Wilderness Railroad, also known as, anybody know? The Fort Wilderness Train Station? <laughs> no, the Wilderness Line. Oh. The Wilderness okay. Line. That's the official name. It was known as Fort Wilderness Railroad. So we're going to do a little bit of backstory here um, just to get into why there was a train at Fort Wilderness and some of the, the uh, design and concepts around it. So we all know that Walt had a love for trains, right? That's that's obviously very you know apparent with the park and everything. He had a, uh, a model train layout, um, and when he met Ward Kimball and Ollie Johnson, that's what triggered him to actually build his backyard uh, railroad, which Ollie already had. Now, the reason I talk about this is that, uh, as you're just going to see in a little bit, um, that backyard railroad, as well as some of the additional folks that worked at Disney, um, helped trigger the inspiration for the Fort Wilderness Railroad, the, specifically the engines. So, um, And also, too, in, in 1948, so this is previous to Disneyland Open, Walt traveled to the Chicago Railroad Fair, and uh, Michael Brogy has uh, great evidence that uh, he was actually drove some of the steam engines there. So not only did he collect these, he played with them and, and collected and, and actually could drive them, uh, which is not easy. Not, driving a steam engine is, is not something that's that, uh, you know, like driving a car. Uh, and back, hey, this goes back to you, JT. In episode three, um, we talked about uh, you know camping at Fort Wilderness, right? That was sure. our, yeah. one of our most popular episodes. Yeah, and um, <laughs> I, I'm so embarrassed by it half the time. Just you know, everything's <laughs> all what... over the place. It's just me <laughs> rambling incoherently through a headset mic. So uh, how I think you and JT mentioned in the episode too, how uh, Fort Wilderness was a very late ad. There's that story about somebody calling up uh, someone saying, "Hey, how's?" How's the how's the campground going? And I forget who what it was. Campground? New, yeah, what <laughs> what campground? Um, so we know that Fort Wilderness came came uh, much later in in the planning stages. But here's an interesting thing: is that you know Disney figured that some sort of train would really extend the theme of the campground. Um, and another thing that we don't think about is that don't forget that contemporary, even in the sight lines, is an extension of Tomorrowland. Polynesian is, is an extension of Adventureland, and Fort Wilderness is an extension of Frontierland. Now we could get into why isn't Frontierland uh, um, for a wilderness over by where the, you know, the golf resort w- was <laughs> anywhere near <laughs> Frontierland. But if you think about that, it, it you know it they wanted to extend that feel and extend that theme uh, into the different resorts. So a train was a natural thing to add to it. Um, it got big support from Roger Brogy and guess who else, guys? Mister Dick Nunes, and he was mm-hmm. very much behind bringing the train there. Um, there's some great concept art uh, that was done by Colin Campbell. Have you, you guys have seen that, right? Where the train is coming through the cypress trees and everybody's canoeing around. A great, yes. great piece of artwork. Yes. 
fast forward into you know the late 60s here uh they're thinking about this but then they get into opening day and they decide that hey you know what we're going to uh, want to bring the railroad to to fruition um, so Roger Brogy is appointed. Uh, he's given the job of designing, building, and delivery. And underneath him is Maury Hauser, Max Convis, Art Mosley, and Bob Gurr. And we're going to talk a little bit about what else Bob Gurr did uh, in the, the uh, design and concepts. And um, there are a lot of other people that, that you know, were obviously also involved. But uh, what I want to talk about first is the specifics of the trains. There's a lot of rumors about the Fort Wilderness Railroad. There's a lot of rumors of what the trains were and the operation. And we're going we're gonna to go through a lot of these and, and really put to bed some of those myths because there's tons of them out there. Um, now, where do you guys remember the, the Walt Disney World trains, the ones that run around the Magic Kingdom? Do you guys remember what their jobs were in their previous life? <sighs> their sugar plantation in the Yucatan Peninsula? That's right. That's right. Wow. So... Just got that I was right. just that about was, to say that. <laughs> I was thinking it, but I couldn't get it out fast enough. <laughs> so, how you're exactly correct, but and we're going to see how some of that is actually linked to the Fort Wilderness trains. So, there's a gentleman by the name of Jerry Best. Uh, he was a railroad historian, and he was instrumental in uh, helping find uh, those specific engines for the Magic Kingdom. And uh, he had worked with Disney in order to, to bring them there. And Jerry and Ward Kimball um, had this affection for plantation engines, and they actually restored two from the Wamalano Sugar Plantation in Hawaii, which was kind of interesting. Ah. So they liked them so much that they actually retook two engines that were uh, out of service, restored them, and started to run them on their own backyard railroads. Now, you know, some of us might have model railroads. These guys had full-size, full-steam you know, <laughs> railroads in their backyard. Uh, Ward had the polka and named it Chloe, and Jerry refurbed the Olamana. Now, Brian, the Olamana was built in Philadelphia at the Baldwin plant. Baldwin, in 18, yeah, yeah, Baldwin Motor Lo- Locomotive Works in 1883, uh, which is pretty cool. Uh, the Olamana hauled sugar for 62 years before retiring in 1944, and it looks just like the engines at Fort Wilderness, which we're going to get to in a just just a second. So Walt actually operated the Olamana at Jerry's home, and it pulled uh, some two-axle, four-wheel cars around. Remember that when we start talking about the actual cars. Uh, And it it required only one person to operate. Um, Believe it or not, the Olamana is actually uh, now part of the Smithsonian. It was donated, and you can see it at the Railroad Museum of Pennsylvania in Strasburg, Pennsylvania. So, Brian, you've got a road trip. We'd like you to go up to Strasburg. Maybe I'll come down. We can go together and uh, check out the Olamana. You are more than welcome to. I have been to the <laughs> train museum before, and I'm happy to uh, accompany you or anyone else out there. We'll have to bring uh, our friend Rob along with us because he's the train man locally. That's right. Where's, That's that, right. where's that at in Pennsylvania? Uh, it's in Lancaster County. It's about yep. an hour plus from me. So it would have been, it would have been, a, it's probably about four hours from you, JT, four or five hours. Yeah. All right. All so right. you want to meet there? That's fine. Sure. Yeah. Well, come down, check it out. So nothing, there's nothing concrete said that the Olamana or the Polka had the inspiration, but you're going to see how, if you look at that and you look at the research that has been done, you're going to find out that uh, it's a good, good possibility that some of the design and the thought process uh, for the building of the and the design of these locomotives came from there. Um, Todd, I heard that the locomotives were four fifths scale, like a weird, odd size. 
Yeah, that that's definitely one of the rumors that's flowing out. So I'm, I'll bust that for you right now. Um, the the where where that came from is that uh, it, there was a, a manual um, back in 1974. There's a Fort Wilderness Railroad manual, and that made no reference to size or scale. But in 1977, the statement in the manual stated that they're four fifth scale, and uh, and they were of a type of a locomotive called a forney with a specific wheel configuration. And the Disneyland Railroad has two of these types. Um, and actually, it turns out that's not. Um, I was reading the book, um, which is all about Fort Wilderness. It's by uh, David Lephart. And we're going to link to this because it's a phenomenal book about the Fort Wilderness Railroad. And it's called Walt Disney World Railroads Part 1, Fort Wilderness uh, Railroad. And David did, did research on this and found a 1915 Baldwin locomotive catalog. And it turns out that the tonnage, the size, the tractive force is nearly the same that was designed and built for the Fort Wilderness Railroad uh, in the 1915 catalog. So um, they added a pony truck on the design for the Fort Wilderness Railroad. But from what Dave's research shows, um, the locomotives were not specifically built to a smaller scale at all. Uh, they were actually built to the specifications of a very similar locomotive that would have been available in the market uh, around 1915. So, uh, huh. rumor, rumor crushed. <laughs> yeah, so, really. All right. So who built these? What would you guys do? If you guys are going to build a railroad, what would you do? <laughs> hmm. Let's oh, see. I'd hire a railroad man. Call an idea. engineer. Call an engineer. Well, they didn't do that. Disney, on the budget <laughs> savings, decided to build their own trains. Now, up until this time, there were only two engines ever built by Disney. Uh, and I shouldn't even say ba- built by Disney. They were paid by Walt for Disneyland's first two engines were paid by Walt. Other than that, um, everything else, as you know, we talked about the, the trains that used to haul sugar around the Magic Kingdom. Those, are, those were, were purchased from Mexico. Here we go. Maypo is going to build these engines and uh, the, at the total cost of about $1 million for that and the track. Now... All the engines are identical. There's, as we mentioned, there's a pony truck in the front, which is two wheels. What a, is a pony truck? A pony truck is the leading wheels in the front that helps the engine navigate the curves. Okay. Um, so, and then so I, that's we, where it's like separated from the. It's on like its own little carriage. Is exactly. That the deal. It, okay. Exactly. And engines, steam engines, are generally referred to from their wheel configuration, right? So there's your, your pony truck that's in the beginning, and then you have your main drive wheels, and then you have your trailing wheels. So if mm. I said to you an engine, it was a 240, that means it would have two on its pony truck, it would have four main drive wheels, and zero trailing wheels. So there's all different configurations, and you could even have 2442, two, oh, there's all sorts of crazy configurations of, of traits. Cool. Um, so... Um, Stay gold, pony truck. That's right. That's right. So what was designed by Maypo was a 240. Okay. So that's the type of train. Uh, they were all identical in terms of the design, the way that everything was laid out in the cab, uh, except for one thing. Anybody want to guess what the one thing was? Uh, the bell. Close. Close. It was actually their number and the artwork on the headlamp. Oh. They, had, they didn't have names. Just numbers. Uh, we had number one was the elk, two the bison, three the deer, and four was the ram. Um, they were going to name them, but it, it never happened out. Some parts, including the boiler, casting the wheels, because you, you, know, you need big sand molds for that, were outsourced. Other than that, completely made in-house. 
that's the engines. Um, now let's talk a little bit about the, the cars that would pull. Uh, those were, remember I mentioned before that uh, the engines that, that were at uh, uh, Jerry's house had four wheels. That's exactly what the, these were do- designed. They were open from front to back, so you could walk through like a real train. So if you got on the very last train car and these cars were hooked up together, you could walk from the front, I'm sorry, from the rear, all the way to the front, just like a, a regular train. Yeah, I think one of the things that I used to think for some reason is that they were built sort of like the Magic Kingdom ones where they were just seats. Right. Went sideways, but they had they had sidewalls, and I mean, it looked like a legitimate old train. Yeah, they did. They did. And uh, almost like a uh, streetcar, and you're going to see something very interesting about streetcars towards the end of its life uh, that we're going to talk about. So kind of picture in your head a streetcar that's opened at both ends, and they're all connected together. Now, our friend Bob Gurr, I think... Brian, it was you who'd mentioned that man can do anything. You're, you're going to love this. And J- JT, you're going to love this as well. He decided to use disc brakes on the design. So this is all Bob Gurr's work. Okay. And he, he used the same brakes that a Chevy Vega had in order to <laughs> slow the train down. Is that not awesome? You know, the love- Vega was built in Ohio. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the one that had the vertical transportation system. Yep. And John DeLorean was the project lead on it. So there you go. Oh, look at that. Look nice. At that. Uh, now, right. what's interesting with that is he picked a Vega. I mean, there was mm-hmm. much. I, I I'm not sure why, other than maybe that it was up to snuff, like enough, you know, stopping well, power. But then parts might be cheap. It, it could have been that there were also only two axles on 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 the cars themselves. Was so one of them four axle four wheels? wheels? <laughs> the other was axle fully. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Um, and and we'll talk about a little bit that actually created some issues but um it was also authentic for a short car so maybe the weight jt of just not needing to use a beefier brake uh and you know he found some parts that were readily available and as we know when chevy made the vega they probably had like four other names under five other different brands that were using all the same parts so at least they were readily available i yeah i think that's the brilliant thing that bob gerd he used to talk about how he would just go into like the books of like spare parts or like parts that were available that you could purchase and he would f- find like whatever was off the shelf that yeah. met the specifications that he would need it. He'd be like, great, let's use that. Well, and then he would just have someone no, figure smart. out how to it's, attach it's, it. It's like, yeah. uh, you know, if right, right, right now, if you got parts from a, a Jetta, you know what I mean? There's Jettas everywhere, you know, or something right. like that. That's common. You can easily get parts, any corner sh- drugstore, you know, like plutonium. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> well, it, testament to that. Exactly what you said. How, what do you think he used for the windows? Oh, Hmm. So the time Let's, period had dropped down windows. Like if you're, a, if you're like rappling a school some, bus window? That's exactly what he used. <laughs> he used a school bus window. <laughs> With the little plastic tabs you squeeze. That's right. You're just guy, yeah, windows. they all, yeah, yeah. So that's what he Close used. all the windows up, kids. We're getting <laughs> so the design is locked down, and they're built out in California. And we all know that, you know, there's even been chapters of Michael Brogy's uh, Walt Disney World Railroad book about how this was called the Will, you know Fort Wilderness Folly. You know, you can make your own decision on whether it was a folly or not, but let's talk about where some problems for the railroad really started. The design and everything sounds great. The price sounds great. We've got the engines. We've got the cars. Here's the first thing. Remember, they were built in California. They never built any test track in California. They built them up, and they just pumped compressed air in it to check and to see if it would work. Um, They had a maintenance car that was battery-operated, and that was shipped out with the trains as well. 
Again, it wasn't tested. It would only go halfway around the tack, track before the battery died. Wait, so they never did live steam in it before no. they sent it to Florida? No, they just sent it out to Florida. <laughs> and you guys go figure it out, right? They're that good. Yeah. And on arrival, uh, you know, there were a bunch of other things didn't didn't work. So now, in order to get to some of the other things that didn't go well for this railroad when it started, we need to talk about the track. And first thing we want to talk about is the gauge, okay? So gauge is the distance between rails. Very simple. Um, most of your standard railroads are over 48 inches. You know, we can go down to the decimal, but, you know, four feet around there, thereabouts. Um, this was built to 30 inch, so it was very narrow. And, uh, but that was good because it would have really tight curves on it. So in 1972, the tracks are starting to be laid. We've got the trains being built without being tested out in California. And uh, again, guys, who would you select to install track? I, I, I would get just to anybody if it was me. <laughs> I'd I say mean, a, a railroad construction worker. A JTU win. I would say um, a day laborer. A day laborer. So a <laughs> blended guy cutting the grass. They, they would just pull up on 535 right. and say, who wants to Blade? work today? That's right. By the 7-Eleven. Well, it was a hybrid between what uh, what uh, uh, Howe and Brian said. They decided that Buena Vista Construction, who had never laid track before, should do it. So the proper way to lay track is you actually have to dig it out. You have uh, you're a trench, so to speak, or a little divot. You pack it with gravel. You put in tie plates and spikes, and you add more gravel, and you tamp everything down. And you also put gauge rods in, which are rods that stay between the rails to keep them at the right width. Um, and then when you lay your track down, you use something called a rail bender, which is exactly what it is. It's a machine that you put a rail in, you dial in the curve you want, and it bends the rail. Well, we didn't use any of those. Like Buena Vista Construction <laughs> decided not to use any of those, and they didn't use the correct rail size. They just eyeballed it all. <laughs> well, even worse. So first, they just decided to put the ties directly on the ground and dump gravel over it after they had laid the track. <laughs> just for that cool look. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Just to make it look like uh, instead of bending the rails at one, uh, you know, with a rail bender, they would tack down one end of the track with spikes, and they would pull it manually and bend it into position. And it, unfortunately, it would kink, and the opposite rail wouldn't even match up. So you would have these jogs in in the track as they were curving uh, it around. Oh my goodness! Now here's the real killer too. They decided to use twenty pound track, and and twenty pound the way that rail is is designated in the railroad world. I didn't realize this. Um, is is the weight per yard. So if you cut a yard of rail... Three feet wi- for a Right, exactly. Three feet, or for our European listeners, about a meter, um, and weigh it, it would be 20 pounds. Uh, so they chose 20-pound track. Um, I was on a railroad just this past week at the, the Mount Washington uh, Cog Railroad, and they used... I was talking to the guy, and he says, oh, we used... The original was 45-pound, and we're moving up to 100-pound track. Just to give you an idea. Okay? okay. So... Um, so light, lightweight track. Exactly. And not only is it lightweight, it's not as tall and it's narrower at the top. And that would dig into the wheels of the cars and start to wear them out quicker. So you want a wider, bigger track. So why didn't they go with that? Well, apparently uh, there was an independent study that was done and found out that it would cost um, Disney $91,000 to install the 20-pound rail. And if they upgraded to 40-pound, it would about have been about 250000 Now Cost. Where are we? We're 1972, right? We've got oil crisis looming. Oh, yeah. It's not a good time. You want this to go in. So they chose the cheaper route. Now, keep 250000 in mind because at the very end of its life, 
that number is going to balloon up when we talk about something. So, you know, with the oil crisis, it's amazing that they even did this. <laughs> when you think sure. about it, we, we lost the other hotels, right? We also talked about the four fixed wheels on the, on the, on the coaches. And uh, if they were on, remember how we said they were fixed? If they were on trucks, trucks are wheels that are on the bottom of trains that can pivot independently of the actual car. If they had gone with that, uh, it would have lessened the wear, but they were expensive. So they went with Bob Gurr's original design, which, again, was more prototypical to what the railroad would have looked like in the 1800s. So, um, and we're going to talk about this what led to rework of the track just four years later in 1976. So we've got the track. We've got the engines being built and not tested. And uh, now we're going to ship everything. And we're also building a roundhouse um, in outside in Fort Wilderness and they think all four trains could be backed into it and the trains had five cars each I'm expecting and the roundhouse to be square judging that's by correct that's been, <laughs> like well we couldn't afford a circle roundhouse with a cube that's, you're, you're correct JT the original true roundhouse was was round and they've all, all roundhouses whether they're square sure. or rectangular just have, take that nomenclature it's just the name yeah exactly there's a couple of rumors are out there too uh, that the engines had poor pulling power and uh, there's a couple people that have confirmed that that's not true. It pulled the cars just fine. Uh, and there's also some rumors true uh, out there, too, that the horses were used to pull the train if it broke down. And, and we're going to squash that one as well. They, they, that was not true. Um, in fact, did they, they can... did they use a horse to bend the track, though, laying it <laughs> like Amish style? That's that's right. In fact, the engines were so powerful. If they did have breakdowns, one engine could not only pull its five trains but it could push uh, five cars it could push another engine with its five cars as well without any oh. problem so there was cool. no problem with the engine we're going to get into six time six unique time periods that this that this uh railroad had um the first one starts in late 73 and midsummer 73 and this is the trial period the track is completed um, we've got some of the accessory buildings not completed, like the water tower and stuff. So they started hooking up water with just a, just a hose. Um, they <laughs> un- uncreated the trains, and uh, Ro- Roger Brogy Jr. decided to, be- to build a rail bender on site and for- at Florida Wilderness to fix all of the track that they had just been laid to fix the kinks. So, oh my God, you're not even live yet, right? It turns out the locomotives were actually built too with too much precision. They were extremely tight. And they needed to loosen them up. So if you think about it, you need play in the wheels as you go around curves. And, um, and here's where a couple other things with the, uh, the engines kind of went wrong. They came with a steam turbine to produce electricity so that you could have lights in the train and et cetera. Um, oh. Junior, uh, Roger Broger Jr. found out that they were underpowered. So Mapo redesigned and shipped a chain on a sprocket design where the wheel of the engine would turn a sprocket which would then turn a generator that kept jumping off and they couldn't use that so mapo decided to design a system that uses an alternator and ships those to florida the turbines removed sent back to california and now they use basically an automobile alternator to generate the power so probably probably from a vega <laughs> could have been from a vega so you know three attempts the fi- the last one finally worked just to get power and, and we're still, again, we're not moving passengers yet. Um, now, what did I say about the Olamana? How many engineers were supposed to, were, were able to run the Olamana? One. One, exactly. Well, it was delivered that way, as one person being able to operate, fire, and drive the locomotive. But they realized that in Florida, they would also need somebody on the 
other side of the train to watch for safety items because they would go around different curves left and right. Oh. What happened? All the valves for the controls were on the left side, and you wanted your engineer on the right, so they had to replumb all of the controls and all four engines on site in Florida to the right side. Oh, come on. I'm dead serious. <laughs> so. so what do you think? They took a lap around. They go, wait a second. I can't see what's going on on this yep. side because I'm working the valves and, here and on the left. This just goes to show how, you know, a grandiose idea 27, 2800 miles away turns into just a mess because we're not even done yet. This is um, like the this, the International Space Station and all the pieces click together like, you know, right. and it worked. Like, this is like if it didn't work. If it, it didn't it work, that's it right. across the country. This is like if instead of a house, the Tom Hanks movie Money Pit was about a railroad. That's <laughs> <laughs> exactly right. It. Exactly right. So the fuel system, these are diesel powered, and it was gravity fed so that the tender would hold the fuel and gravity would bring it down. But there wasn't enough pressure. So in Florida, they had a fuel pump. And then it turns out that the the guess, guess what it's from, how <laughs> exactly yeah. it's a fuel pump from the Vega. It's a Vega, even though it wasn't diesel. They still tried it. That's right. The bearings in the cars were the wrong size. All the cars were wobbling all over the place. They had to pull all the wheels off the car and change all the bearings. Now, why uh, is that? Why? How did they screw that? I, up? I, I don't know. I mean, it's just it's it's unbelievable how much went wrong. And this is all during this trial period. So we're talking late spring to midsummer seventy. Gosh, it sounds horrible. Like because three like months. You finally get the controls right. You finally get the fuel pump, the alternator. All right, let's take her for a spin, Bill. And then all of a sudden, the right. Why is she wobbling all over the tracks? <laughs> exactly. Just something every day. Um, they also attempted to use remote switches. They had antennas and sensors. They what? put in one. It didn't work. It was unreliable. They removed it. And apparently today, if you know where to look, the, the mount blocks for the concrete, the concrete mount blocks are still there. Um, now, ironically, during some of the trial periods, they actually did let people ride it. It was on a 1.6-mile loop. Uh, and it went from Settlement Depot and, um, and down near the check-in trailer. This is before they built the Gateway Depot, which we know today, which is the big you know, um, settlement depot. Se- yeah. The, at, the, well, yeah. The gateway depots out at the beginning at the, uh, the, the entrance. Oh yeah, yeah. 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 Right. The reception so this is before outpost that. out there, reception yeah. outpost. Sorry. Yes. Gateway depot is a separate, separate area. Um, all right. So one thing that I read was this route was twice as long as the magic kingdom, which meant that it needed a certain amount of water to make the trip and it wouldn't hold enough water. And on top of that, with that long length in the bad track limit, you said there was like, or I heard there was like derailments and stuff like right, the, the right. train derailed, which, you know, obviously took people's legs off or something. So, right. So in Dave Lepart's book, uh, he interviewed a number of crew that had worked on the railroad for almost its entire life. And uh, there were very, very few derailments. So that's actually a, a rumor that there were a lot. Um, one of them came when a child left his bike on the track and another one, uh, a crewman had actually flipped the switch the wrong way. Um, they said it did happen, but not as much as, you know, the Internet and, and rumors would, would lead you to believe. In terms of the water, um, there's all this rumor that, you know, that this water tank was too small and all this stuff. Um, the tank held 225 gallons of, of water, and um, it did run out uh, on the trial period. But they found out that's normal during tuning engines. You're, you're breaking these things in. You're trying to figure out where all the valves and all the settings should be. Um, and they're on uh, the wrong side. We learned. Yeah, and we're on the wrong <laughs> side, so we don't know where we're what we're looking at. 
Um, and they and, and one of the engineers reported that they accidentally completely forgot to fill up one day and they went around twice, nearly five and a half miles on, on one tank of, of water. So it, it had plenty. They did That's fill good up. That's mileage. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> 225 gallons of water to five miles. And the other interesting thing is that the length is something that was contested, saying it was 3.5 miles uh, in the 1977 manual. Maybe if you laid out all the track, including the switches and going up to the roundhouse, um, that was about 3.2. But the actual loop, and Dave Lephart m- mapped this all out on GPS, was actually only 2.7 miles. So it wasn't as big as, as people think. So there was no problem going around again if you forgot your water. So Interesting. Yeah. All right, so we've got these things tuned now, right? It's midsummer seventy-three. Hopefully, <laughs> Hopefully. so let's let's move into its second period. Let's get into the heyday here. Oh, we're not even there. This is considered what they call the pre-opening period. So we're not even open yet. Um, so this is summer. Uh, this is uh, midsummer seventy-three, and uh, this is when Fort Williams was kind of going through his expansion. The check-in trailer. This is what we we're just talking about. The outpost reception building was built. The check-in trailer was closed. Uh, and they added Gateway Depot, which is now down by where the horses are. If you ever go down and take up uh, the pony ride or the horseback, uh, not the pony ride, the horseback ride, that bus depot where they pick you up, the train ran right along the backside of where those buses pick you up. So if you want to pretend you're waiting for the train, just stand there and look to your left or right, or your left. Um, there was also a water treatment uh, facility there and the tower, and the water treatment building is actually still there. You can go check that huh. out. So, That's cool. Yeah, it's all right there by the uh, out reception outpost bus stop. If you're yep, that's... exactly. So if you were on an if you were an engineer, you would pull up to the Gateway Depot, and you only had an 18 inch window to pull the train in correctly in order to fill the water. And this was the only location you could fill up. Um, <laughs> so if you pull in too far, then you got to back up and. You know, if you overcooked so, your Vega brakes, that's right. <laughs> oh my gosh! So we're gonna take an imaginary journey here in, in the pre-opening. Was period. there reverse? Could there was reverse. Up? Yep. Okay. Yep. But you know, in, in the steam train, it's not just like you know throwing your Vega into R and hitting the gas <laughs> and let, releasing the clutch. You, you yeah. know, gotta do a little work, right? So if we imagine getting on the train to Gateway Depot, we would uh, depart, and our first stop would be Possum Path, which. Well, we're going to add these in. We're going to add the loop numbers in because I know we have a lot of Fort Wilderness listeners who know everything by the loop numbers. So that's the 1100 loop. Um, and uh, that, that took over the, the front stop that was initially there. And uh, then it goes over the Fort Wilderness Trail Road that's there. Uh, the second stop, which everybody kind of knows, is the Meadow Trading Post and Depot where there, you know, you, people would do their shopping there. And that's where the crew break room was, too. They would, uh, you know, pull right up to the porch and apparently they had to slow the train down sometimes. The conductors would have to jump off and move the train, move the bikes that had been improperly <laughs> parked oh and hanging gosh. out on the track. Have you guys seen the p- pictures of how close it pulled up to the building? I mean, it's only like three feet away. So that's what I'm kind of remembering. Because I think when I first went to Fort Wilderness, I'm sorry, when I first went to River Country, I remember thinking like, oh, I'm going to take this train to River Country. And then it pulled up to this other building. I'm like, what is this? And where is River Country? And right. how do I get there? So <laughs> Exactly. And then I, I recall later on when we took the trams, it dropped us off much closer to River Country. And then I was like, wait a minute, what happened to that building that we got <laughs> dropped off at before? That's right. So there were a number of other stops after that going between the 6, the 700 loop. Um, and the fourth stop, was up near Settlement Depot, which is the Hope Dee Review is up there where the pony rides and, uh, you know. That's that's in our there. Art and Linda video, too. Like that's right. There. That's right. And mm-hmm. that's actually the second Settlement Depot stop because as we're going to learn, it actually changed. They changed the station. Oh, okay. Um, now, 
when it leaves there, there's there's a fifth stop um, between the three and five hundred loops. But this is where it gets to a spot that I think that everybody remembers in the films we've restored, uh, official Disney films, and a lot of the photos that you've seen. You see the train crossing a trestle bridge, um, and you're going over. Remember those pictures of it with people canoeing in the water and the trains behind them and all that. And oh, yeah. Um, yeah, that was Chickasaw Creek, which it ran along. Um, and, you know, you had horse trails and there were gators. And apparently back there, too, the, 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 the cast members would really just ad hoc the spiel. And they would try to get people to look, um, apparently, at some uh, some camp in the background that didn't exist. And people would just be craning their necks looking out <laughs> at some, something back there. Sounds about right. Um, and you come around to the 1300 loop, um, and that's where they would actually do all the lubrication for the train. So they're all, you know, think about it, you've got lubrication stop here. You've got a maintenance stop at, up at Settlement Depot. You've got your water stop down in, at Gateway. Nothing's in one spot. Nothing's all over the place. And it's, you know, quite quite an endeavor to, to remember where all the stuff is and get used to it. Um, anyway, and then there you would go back to the Gateway Depot to where, you know, where we started. So this, this configuration, the pre-opening, so to speak, ran until the end of August 73, uh, and then they took the system down for more maintenance for another couple months until November um, 1973 as well, which is crazy. When did we start this? You know, late 71 or so, we decided we were laying track in 72. We were tweaking it. Um, now we're January 1974. We're two years later, and we finally get into what they call the transportation period, and we have a golden spike ceremony. Have you guys seen the pictures? I have. <laughs> With Mickey about to wail on Goofy's yeah, hand awesome. holding the spike. It's great. And it would have been a perfect Goofy short, too, of him getting jacked up, you know, by the train <laughs> and, you know, getting burned by the water, the whole deal. But since we have the train, it's now being billed as one of the three transportation options for guests of Fort Wilderness. Um, and the interesting thing is that the trams and the buses were supposed to supplement the rail line. They really want the railroad to be your main way of getting around and i think maybe people forget that back then you know i think you mentioned this in episode three jt is that um you know a lot of the the the, you left your car at the main parking lot and cars weren't allowed to you know roam through the campground your idea was not traditionally no it's not a not a preferred method exactly exactly so a lot of times uh people would park their cars and the idea that disney had would would be that you would go ahead and um, leave your car, and if you need to get around the, uh, you know, the, the 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 resort, you would take the train. You know, you need food, you jump on the train. It'll take you over well, there. And- the other thing too is, I mean, yeah, you know, you have a tow vehicle. It's not necessarily like a, a jump in the car and go type thing, or it's you know, or if you have an RV, you know, like a, a all in one. I mean, you can't move your move your setup to go get your your eggs at the the you know meadow trading post or whatever <laughs> exactly exactly so it was obviously with this it was free to all fort wilderness guests you you got to ride it uh everybody else had to pay 50 cents each for a, a, you know one trip how uh, did actually, they know do you have anything about that how they knew do you have a ticket did you have like a, a guest I, card i remember we had to get a ticket when we went to good river country i mm-hmm. think we had like a combo ticket that had the train right. i'm guessing that we had a combo ticket with like the train ride and river country on it that's i you just show your uh, your resort id or something they had back then if you were a resort member that's right you had the, the they were uh white with brown ink and then they were those old um uh, there's a name for it i forget the type of printer that they use that printed your name on it. if you flash those resort id cards they gotcha. would let you on. And the 50 cents, I, I should correct myself, the 50 cents would actually be able to ride all day. And that was to help supplement the, the, the running costs of it. 
<laughs> probably put a big dent in it after all this work they had to do 50 cents. <laughs> We're not done yet. <laughs> so in this transportation period, they have to continually tune the equipment. So um, the pipe to get steam to the boilers was made of steel, but all the fittings were brass. What do we what do you guys remember from high school physics about metals and heat? That's not good. You put those two together, we got a problem. Right. We have different expansion and contraction rates, right? Mm -hmm. So they have leaks, they have steam loss, less pressure, and uh, two locomotives have the issue. Two of them never had the issue. So we fixed that. On top oh. of that, the locomotives, you ever notice the domes on top of locomotives? You know, you know, not only the smokestack, but you have those domes in the back. One is a steam dome. And also one of them is called the sand dome, where sand is stored. And through the pressure, they're able to put sand ahead of the wheels to gain traction when you're going up small inclines. Oh. Which is kind of neat. So if you look at locomotives, you ever go up to a museum, look for a pipe just in front of the, of the wheel, and that's where the sand would come out. You can trace that line all the way back up to the sand dome. Huh. So, well, how we talked about humidity in Florida. What happens with sand in Florida and humidity? It's not a, uh, probably doesn't move around as much as you'd like it to. You got it. It basically yeah, that water probably makes it kind of stick to itself. That's right. right. It clogged and clumped because you want it dry and be able to blast it out. Um, and apparently, it just it would get so clogged that just air would come out. So if traction was needed, <laughs> they'd manually jump out of the cab and put Push. a little put a little sand in front of the engine to, to help. Oh it my go gosh! So. Uh, when did we run? So at this point, we're running 8 a.m. to 9 p.m. You know, a lot of people say, oh, it ran until 11 o'clock. No, it didn't. It never ran later than 9. They said a lot of people did like the train late in the day because they would put the kids on it. If the kids couldn't sleep, they'd just go for a ride and, you know, help make the kids fall oh, asleep. that's cute. Um, yeah, and Michael Brogy did admit that the whistles were t oversized and it, it was louder than it should have been. So oh boy. things aren't adding up well here. Um, I'm like, all. so maybe the kids didn't sleep after all. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's one of the complaints oh. you read about, is it? Yes. The noise. The morning, it was very early close. morning ride, you know, to Magic Kingdom. I am not in the mood to get up after my right. day at the park and then, you know. Exactly. And if you're, you know, you're making this the main primary source of transportation, then, you know, you've got to be up and running. Um, and they were close to the campsites, too. So you have vibrations. You've got noise. It's, it's just, yeah. It's I'm not in a Hillary tent right there next to the thing and, you know, trying to <laughs> sleep and boom. Yep. So one of the other things is, you know, oh, it was hitting people and people were getting injured. I mean, we know with the proximity to campsites and everything, it was definitely close. And as we talked about, it was very close to the Meadows Trading Post. But um, in the seven years of operation, uh, there were no serious injuries or fatalities. Uh, except no kidding. One, except one bike tire got crushed. So, um, the in fact, there were more issues with trams. Uh, the tram... Um, uh, the last car got a flat sideswiped a fence and the, the boy jumped off uh, and the train did hit a Disney truck early in one, one, one morning, but nobody, nobody essentially was hurting any of these. So kind of, kind of interesting. Now what's interesting, like if you it run me through this, so say they're loading up the train, like, do they have like a, like a guard on the side or like a little door or like, did you get on there? Was there something to keep you on? Yeah, so there was stairs on either end of, of the coaches that mm -hmm. you could walk up, and then you'd walk into the center of the train. Uh, initially, the uh, trains had three cast members. You had an engineer, a fireman, and also a conductor. And later on, as we're going to talk about as, we, as it started to wind down, the fireman also played the role of conductor as they started to cut the jobs down 
Um, and there were also sometimes people at the station that would take the tickets. Towards the end of its operation, the, con- the fireman would become the conductor, sell tickets, buy tickets, check tickets, get everybody on, and fire the boiler and help, <laughs> help the engineer. So it got very, wow. very crowded. And, and, but, you know, the stations were very simple with just little, little corrals, and they would just open the gate and let you, you know, walk down the platform and jump on whichever car you wanted. Um, and again, once you were in, you could walk between all the different cars. Um, they did have a training system, by the way, um, and it, a lot of it was on-the-job training, but it was very, you know, it was a close-knit bunch of people, and the training was very, very good. Um, and since we're on the, the topic of cast members, too, um, the conductors, they had the, uh, they rode in the back, but they had the pants, the bola tie, white shirt, conductor's cap, just, you know, imagine a conductor. And uh, the engineer fireman had the typical striped overalls and the red bandana, so looking pretty good. We're now going to enter into the third period, which is, you know, we, we, we tested it out. We had a pre-opening. We started using it for transportation within the resort. But um, in, in, in 74 to 75, it provided most of the transportation in the resort. But in spring of 75, um, what we're going to call this the attraction period. And uh, this goes until about January 76. Um, and it became a attraction rather than transportation. Um, it went to only two stops. So it stopped at the Gateway Depot and Settlement Depot. And Fort guests were now charged 50 cents per person a day to use it. And everybody else was a dollar or 50 cents per child for all day tickets. And again, trying to cover the, the running uh, costs. As a result, the ridership dropped. Um, there were less stops. And plus, you had free trams and free buses. So why are you going to take a slow mode of transportation that went 10 miles per hour <laughs> and you only oh, had no. two stops when you had, you know, uh, the options of the trams and buses. And at this point, they only ran one train operating during the day and no night trains. So it took a while to get around the whole loop. So unless it was convenient and you had the ticket, you know, what do you, why would you use it? So now the ridership is down. Now we'll get back to the engines again. And uh, apparently the air compressors started to act up. And they found a solution that you would go down and you'd find a rock. And you would <laughs> nail it on the compressor. <laughs> and that would jar the piston <laughs> loose. Um, and eventually they found out that the type of oil in the compressor uh, was leaving carbon deposits. And it turns out that all Magic Kingdom trains had the same problem and wound up switching the oil as well. So the Fort Williams Railroad actually fixed a problem in the Magic Kingdom trains, which is just hmm. kind of neat. The attraction period takes us to uh, January 1st, 1976. We're only two years into operation, and you can see we've been through transportation and attraction and that leads us to, I think, how when you actually wrote it. And this is okay. May 76 to summer 78. Does that fit into when you would have? Uh... It, it very well could have been, yeah. Yeah. So what's coming to the fort? Well, we got fort, we got river country, right? And Disney is expecting crowds. So the railroad goes down for another change to improve it. This is crazy. So this is May 76. They remove the rails pull-up ties in the worst spots. Uh, so, so, you know, they didn't remove all the rails, but just in the really bad spots. Um, they re- reused the rail, and they bent it properly this time. Um, they added tie plates, and they actually hired the crew back while it was down to come tamp the ballast and, you know, push the, all those rocks down between the ties. So they're trying. They're trying to, to fix these, these challenges. And then this is, JT, you mentioned the settlement depot. Yes. This is they demolished the original depot station and moved it closer uh to river country 
Uh, and this also eliminated a pedestrian road crossing. So they got rid of a crossing and they moved it closer to river country because they wanted to use this to move people from the main parking lot directly to river country. Now, where was that? Like if I'm there now, where would I see either one of these? So what's interesting is the settlement depot station from 76 is now this strange bit of, of um, asphalt off the side of the road. Where that was, if, if you walk out of hoop de doo if you come out of the, the front door of hoop de doo make a right, and you take that walkway all the way down to the bus stop and cross a, a, across the road, that's West Wilderness Road. And right mm-hmm. there, there's this odd piece of asphalt just hanging off the side of the road, and that's where the station was. And that's the track ran, ran parallel to, to West Wilderness Road right there. Got it. So if you're staying at the bus stop, you just look across the street. That's it's to me that road that runs to the lodge they take you on. That's it's right yeah. across the street there. Exactly. Okay. Yep. So that, again, that was to get people closer to River Country. Um, so uh, by May, we're all ready to go. River Country was opening in June. How in in '76, if you had River Country ticket, you got a ride on the train automatically. So oh, okay. It was, it was included, right. and other others, everybody else had to pay. Um, they started running at that point three trains at once and even were able to push it to four of them, all of them, at a, as a busy time. Now, let's do a little math here. The trains carried 90 people. The trams carried 150. Um, so they decided to experiment with six cars, but the platforms were only designed for five. Oh. So in these test runs, you if you, you couldn't pull up to the platform, so they had to have everybody exiting, walk through the cars and go around people in order to get out at the platform. <sighs> Uh, on top of it, they had to add rubber floors to the bottom of the cars because everybody was getting off at River Country and just dripping wet, and it was too slippery. And uh, then people started the stroller started to come out, you know, with people with those umbrella strollers, and the whole thing was never equipped for you know, strollers. And that was one of the main complaints: people wanted the cars redesigned to equip to be equipped for strollers, um, so they couldn't do that. This adds to that that aspect, which you know we should mention is when River Country. One of the biggest problems was you couldn't pull up in your car into a parking lot and just you know hop out and go. Like you had to park at the reception outpost, you yeah. Had transportation in, and if you're at another resort, you could take a boat over. But still, it wasn't easily accessible. So the train, I mean, I'm sure back then they were like, "Hey, this is great. We got this water park here, but we got a train. It's, <laughs> it's amazing. Come, yep. You know, it's perfect transportation." set you up like i mean imagine a perfectly themed typhoon lagoon transportation mode taking you to that water park i mean it sounds amazing on paper but it didn't really work nope it didn't it didn't so also in 76 how maybe if you were there in 76 it was decked out for for with buntings for the 76 bicentennial (laughs) so it did it looked like a like a the abraham lincoln you know train tour on the inauguration (laughs) all that the stuff on it the buntings (laughs) that's right so in summer 77, we enter our last attra- uh, last period for the railroad, and that lasted until February 1980. And this was what they considered the river country attraction period. So it kind of goes back to this quiet period where the hours were cut again. So now we're only running 9.30 to 5 p.m. with usually only one train. They drew- This is when they dropped it to a two-person crew that we talked about. Uh, the station master job was eliminated. Then the conductor was eliminated. Um, and as we talked about, the firemen had to load and unload. And in fact, what's really interesting, this perfectly coincides with the Art and Linda film. If you watch carefully in that, Art took uh, film of the train pulling right up to Settlement Depot. And as the last, as the engine approaches, 
the uh, station, the fireman jumps off and comes out and opens the gate and starts to go over to people to check them in. So it, it lines up perfectly with what their job was. And at that point, it was 50 cents per person per day. We're getting closer and closer to 1980 now. And um, what happened was as, as a lot of the engines had problems, they would start using um, parts from one train to keep the other running. And the number of runs got less and less uh, as we got closer to, to 1980. Dave, and, and Dave Lephart's book, and, and I'm going to mention this at the end because it's a phenomenal read. There's three separate books. Um, but he talked to multiple cast members to find out about the end of the story of, of you know, when did it exactly close? Because there's, there's tickets out there. And we talked to some people who said, oh, I've got a ticket stamped in 1982. Well, we know Disney. They're pretty cheap. And also, too, we know Disney that they accept, you know, old transportation tickets and such like that back then. So if you had a transportation ticket that said Fort Wilderness, um, you still had to pay to use the monorail or you had to pay to use some other form of transportation. So chances are Disney just accepted those and put 82, stamped it as, as used, avoided. Um, so that doesn't mean that the train was running in 1982. But again, Dave talked to many, many individuals who were on the crew in 1980 and basically this is what happened it's february 1980 rolls around and everybody's told that everything was going down to be refurbished which was actually 100 percent true um they sent the number one engine to central shops get some new parts the cars were painted they had new windows being installed and everybody was told they'll be back in six weeks um so cast members went off and did different things and after six weeks they were told they needed more time but Alas, nothing ever came back. What was the reason, guys? Anybody <laughs> have any clue here after all we talked about? Well, uh, it didn't run anybody over. Uh, we fixed the, the track problem. Um, and the noise complaints, maybe, those were still a problem. Maybe because the future, the 21st century, was starting now. You know, and <laughs> That's the, right. I, I, I mean, I'd say that everyone just was so wrapped up with Epcot Center. But they're just like, hey, we don't have time for this. Well, interesting. You mentioned Epcot because they even investigate investigate with GE sponsoring the railroad. No kidding. Oh. Yeah. So here's here's what happened. Because that's the first thing I think of when I think of an old-timey steam, <laughs> steam locomotive is mm, General Electric. Well, what does General Electric make? Turbine engines. They, they, they bring good things to life. They, well, they did bring good things to life, but they, they also make diesel electric trains oh not steam not steam but hey you know maybe maybe they were looking for it so really what it boiled down to was not only uh, operational cost but the track you think they fixed it but it wasn't good enough um however they weren't going to let it die um dick nunes apparently was very much behind the plan to fix the track once and for all and keep it going and that's where ge came in they investigated having it being sponsored so Disney decided, now this is going on at the time that everything is up and be, uh, shut down and being in central shops and getting painted. So they're still trying to bring this back to life. Um, and so Disney sets out to determine what the cost would be to rip up all the track, do it over, and do it once for all. Now remember, if they did it right back in 1971, at least with the right weight track, it would have been $250,000. So they had an independent uh, auditor come in and do a research and figure out and find out what it would be. And the price tag was at that point north of $3 million wow. to, to rip it all up and do it over. 
So they didn't want to commit. The refurb was halted. Um, but, you know, they, it didn't end there because Nunes really wanted it and wanted some sort of train. So this this blew my mind when I heard this. Because the track was so small comparatively, you know, it was only 20-pound track, Nunes said, okay, what can we do on this track otherwise? Could we do something battery-operated? So they actually shipped from California the former Nature's Wonderland train <gasps> from Disneyland all the way out to Florida. It's battery-powered. It fit the track. They took it around, around the around the rails with Dick Nudis. It took them an hour to get around, and Dick got off and said, send it back to California. <laughs> and that was the end of that because it took an hour to get around. It was just too slow. So at that point, you know, the final nail is in the coffin at this point. You know, this is nineteen. This is nineteen eighty, folks. We're not in the battery power and the amazing things that we can do with lithium-ion batteries and Tesla cars. So uh, at that point, it's pretty much you know we know where it's going at this point. And, and don't forget, you know, there was all of those plans for what Buffalo Junction that showed the train running between Fort Wilderness and and uh, Buffalo Junction. All yeah. That. You know, what's interesting is that a lot of people do, and especially Michael Brogy says that, you know, it was steam whistles running, you know, ruining people's lives there. And they didn't like the noise, as you point out, JT. But, you know, it, it really it, it really turned out to be the track and just finding out that it was just not economical enough to, to rip it up and do it all over, um, so which which is a shame. So, But, Todd, that's not the end of the road for the railroad, is it? It is not. It is not the, the end, end of, the, of the track. Oh, that's right. <laughs> so where did the everything terminus, end up? The terminus they were terminus, That's right. Basically what happened is that the trains, rather than storing them in the roundhouse, they moved them outside the roundhouse because they needed the roundhouse to store landscape and golf cart and do golf cart repair in it. So unfortunately they were sat outside into um, for, for a while. The tracks were in place into July 1983. So three years later they finally... Um, paved over the grade crossings um, in 1986 some of the cars were donated to the Brevard County Zoo um, along apparently with 3,000 feet of rail that matched the same you know uh, pound track that they were using from what we can find out they didn't do anything with them um, and then I've never heard this term but they said some rail went to Pluto Park because the Main Street trolley uses the same gauge track and I guess Pluto Park is an internal name for that mess of retired attraction vehicles in the upper northwest the, portion the boneyard yeah the boneyard is that's that's right the rest was moved to another warehouse area sometime that in 85 and 86 and uh one car was actually put on display in fort wilderness and sat out there in, until the 90s so this stuff is rotting away um outside of uh outside of uh, the warehouses and um ward kimball alerted the Carrollwood Pacific Historical Society um, and essentially through a lot of negotiations and Marty Sklar and Jane Alcorn getting involved. Uh, it took, from what we understand, is it took many, many years in order for this to happen. Um, but the remaining 11 coaches and four locomotives were able to be purchased by Carrollwood Pacific Society members. Um, and uh, we're going to kind of go through where we think a lot of them are um, but, uh, before we do that, I have a rundown of where we think the rest of the coaches went. Two of them went off, as we know, to where, where was the famous location that two went to? Pleasure Island. That's right. That's right. And it's, apparently one of them was auctioned off after that as well. 
One of them also went to Typhoon Lagoon and was in the parking lot area as you drove around somewhere in there. I never remember seeing it. Uh, and we don't know if that's one that came from Pleasure Island or was another one. Uh, we talked about the three or four that went to the Brevard County Zoo. There's rumor that they were sold to a county fair. Um, but we do know that one was bought by the name, a gentleman by the name of Bob Kelso. And he mounted on a trailer and restored it and would pull it around Fort Wilderness. And people would have pictures taken <laughs> with it and could go aboard. It was gorgeous. They sold it to a family in Wisconsin. It's currently currently up for auction on eBay for $980,000. So if the family in Wisconsin is listening, I think your price is a wee on the high side. There's rumor that some went to a Florida preschool. Um, and there was rumor that one was out in Marceline, Missouri. But we've debunked that, that that's yeah, not true. that's not true. That's not true at all. Now, here's what's very interesting is that the individuals at the Carrollwood Pacific Society... Um, they are uh, members trying to preserve Walt's railroading legacy. Um, and there's a lot of agreements that they put in place uh, with the Walt Disney Company when they purchased these. And also, uh, these members uh, respect their each other's privacy in terms of what they own and um, you know what, uh, what they have in their collections and also the details of what they're going to do with that specific equipment. Um, Without naming names except for one, um, I can tell you that uh, uh, if you go to steamlocomotive.com, and I'm going to read what they have, and I think these are pretty accurate of who owns them and where they are, but they have a locomotive database where you can even look up the Walt Disney World and the Disneyland engines and where they were and where they went. Uh, But the four remaining engines, or I should say the four engines, um, are all in California. Two are owned uh, by one gentleman. Another is owned by another gentleman. And we have tracked down the exact GPS coordinates of Fort Wilderness uh, train number one, which is owned by none other than John Lassiter. Mm. Yeah, I have sat down in Google Maps and somebody on um, Reddit actually posted a picture of a train at this uh, specific location. So I got into Google Maps. I tried searching around and sure enough, as of February 8th, 2018, is still sitting there at the Hillcrest Farm in Reedley, California. And apparently that one is exactly, is, is, is John Lasseter's, and it is in rough shape. The agreements when they purchased these from Disney is that they would not be restored to operating condition. Um, and basically that means that, hey, you know, if you buy this from us and you get it running again, um, you know, we're not liable for anything. You know, we don't want you running it again because we don't know what it was, you know, it's legalese, right? It's insurance and, and legal departments getting involved, preventing you from restoring them. Not to say that any of these members might in the future restore them. I, I hope that somebody does. I hope that somebody brings it back. Uh, there's rumor that some of them are being um, regaged to a, a larger gauge so that they could tour around the country and run on more standard track, which would be which would be really cool. Uh, but it's an expensive undertaking, and obviously the people that own these have dedicated themselves to to helping preserve, um, you know, Walt's legacy and some of the trains involved in the Disney Company. So I'm I'm hoping that over the years that these will start to emerge. And uh, you know, Brian, you and I and, and JT, we spoke with one of the members, um, getting some of this information, and and without naming names and giving some of the details of our conversation, uh, it was it, it was interesting to see that the care that they take into 
to uh, restoring these. Well, and that, that, yeah, and that's the important thing that, you know, there was a period of time where the likely fate of these locomotives was going to be that they were scrapped. Uh, and, you know, through a lot of efforts off the radar screen, uh, they have been, you know, they're in the hands of people who care about them now and who are going to make sure that they don't disappear and that they don't get scrapped. So we know that, you know, four of these locomotives will survive uh, and end up on display somewhere someday. Uh, and you might be able to ride them. So that's 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 a great thing, you know, for because we've seen so many things from the history of these parks that just goes away forever. And what's what's unique, I think, too, is when you think about it, other than there's very few things that you could get from a Disney park or a Disney resort that uh, especially attraction based that could run outside of its original intended location. Mm -hmm. Right. This can run on rail. Yeah. I mean, maybe the Tomorrowland Speedway cars can run without a rail. But if you ever got a people mover car, what are you going to do with it? You're not going (laughs) to put an electromagnetic track (laughs) in your backyard. Right. Right. So um, a lot of these people are are obviously very dedicated. And and I'm, I'm hoping that some of them eventually do come back to life, but also in a way that the public can see it and experience it again. Um, and you know, understood. We want to respect their 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 privacy and, and, and what they have and what they and what they own. Uh, but hopefully, if they're listening, we'd love to see them someday, uh, which would be great. So we mentioned Buffalo Junkin guys, but recently there's been rumor that the old River Country area is uh, being redeveloped, and who knows, maybe some sort of automated train or diesel fired train just like the one of the animal kingdom may come back but brian's shaking his head that's not gonna happen gonna happen that's not gonna happen (laughs) they'll they'll throw some more buses in and call it a day well skyway it's it's um obviously we i mean the building permits have been filed so it's more or less a certainty that it's coming that they're gonna put additional another hotel there whether it's DVC or some combination thereof, that there's going to be additional wilderness-themed mm-hmm. uh, lodging available in that spot, which is, you know, what you would expect. It is not, as we talked about on our River Country episode, it is not an appropriate spot for a hard-ticket uh, operation of any kind just because of the transportation issues of getting guests mm-hmm. to it. I, I want to give a plug to Dave Lephart's book. You've heard me mention his name many times, um, and we talked about a book, but there are actually three books that I purchased uh, for the re- for the research of this. Um, we are planning to talk to Dave and go into a little in depth, uh, a little more in depth on some of the the operations, and get that maybe on a, a mini episode in the future. Um, he not only uh, did he write this book and interview everybody; he's an artist, and he did absolutely fantastic drawings of the operation take a look at this guys i mean this is his own artwork of how oh, the, wow. the actual steam engines work how the boilers work the sand domes um everything to the saddle tank i mean yeah i'm speaking railroad jargon here as i flip through the page he's got fantastic photos he goes through the entire history um and there's a total there's three books in total uh the first one is about 150 pages or so all full color photographs uh, which is goes into the history. Uh, the second book, uh, part two, uh, is photo galleries of the entire um, Fort Wilderness Railroad from inception all the way up to uh, through operation, shutdown. And I think the coolest thing that he does in this is that he gives you the GPS locations of many, probably 40, 50 different photos 
Uh, so you can enter them in your, your GPS and go find exactly where this stuff was. He's That's measured fun. everything. He's got all the GPS waypoints. So you can me- enter it into some sort of software and follow your GPS and walk the whole thing. Not that it's recommended. In certain areas, <laughs> it's not a... It's not a do, really cool. Do you have to, to swim go. where the trestle bridge used to be? <laughs> you might have to. Just now, bring is a that big... still there? I think that was knocked down some some years ago. In fact, yeah, just talk about here's, yeah, here's the before and after photo. And, oh yeah, yep. The inset there has the has the after photo. Uh, it's a fantastic book. And then the, the third book in the series is is a little thinner, but he's got 3D pictures and he's got some artwork in there, and again a lot of other old photos. Um, and, uh, which is, which is really neat. So this, this whole three book series is a fantastic read. If you're a, uh, a train buff, you know, and you like trains, I'd say, say, get all three. If you want to hear, learn about the history, get part one. And if you just want some photos and you want to go hunting around for where things used to be, um, you know, not that we, uh, recommend it a hundred percent, but, uh, you know, there's some areas where you can go that you probably shouldn't go. And then there's some areas that are completely wide open where the, where the track used to be. Uh, but, but take a look at, uh, at book two for that. Um, one other item of note. Have you guys ever seen, and this ties into something you asked about how earlier, what the Main Street trolleys look like in Disneyland Paris? I have not, I have not been to Paris, so I can't. <laughs> All right, I can't say I, that. I have been there, but I can't recall either time I visited there seeing the trolleys. Okay, so I'm th- there was a thought, and this this is going to bring us to the end here. There was a thought that they would use the existing Fort Wilderness trains uh, in Disneyland Paris as the uh, Main Street trolleys. Um, alas, that did not come to fruition. Uh, instead, they decided to design. Uh, but if you look at the, the trolleys for Main Street and Disneyland Paris, you're going to notice an eer, eerily similarity uh, to the coaches at Fort, Fort Wilderness, right down to some of uh, Bob Gurr's and, and original design concepts and everything. So hmm. really kind of a, a neat end. There's kind of a nod to it in a way. Uh, and they did say that they did use it for a lot of the inspiration because it just didn't work to send them over. So kind of a neat little... So if you want to ride a Fort Wilderness train... Head over there. They're all enclosed because of the inclement weather that, uh, 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 you know, France can often experience in the winter. So kind of a neat, neat little thing. And if you want to know what it was like to ride, we do have some of the best footage out there on our website. So, yeah, absolutely. Art and Linda coming through, you know, Art was the man when (laughs) when it came to that stuff. So and we actually uh, are working on a full uh, someone has possession of a full ride, uh, on ride from start to finish, the full loop that uh, Todd and I were made aware of, and mm-hmm. there are efforts underway to try to get that to us. Right, so. and we'll 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 work to restore that as as well, and and get it out to everybody. Well, guys, I hope you enjoyed that. I, I, I this was one of the most fun episodes for me to to research because I enjoy trains. Um, I've talked to a number of different people. Of, about this and some of the technology behind it. Um, Dave Lephart's book, look for it on Amazon. We'll, we'll link it in the show notes. goes into tons more detail too. how this, how to actually operate the train and all the different valves that were in the uh, inside of the cab. It's a fantastic read. So could we build a simulator of how to run the <sighs> Fort Wilderness train then, since we know how everything was connected? I, you know what? I don't see why not, because there's train simulator programs out there where we can, 
build some we can build our own train in it and put it on a track that's oh. a great idea how hey jason where are you <laughs> let's get jason on this get that 3d model going um but he even had look at this guys he even has in this book the dimensions of all of the signage oh my god cross bucks and everything the hell that was he used that? around he he did research and and figured out the measurements from photos um, historical stuff. And then this is what I was talking to you about earlier, too. These are all of the GPS waypoints superimposed over Google Maps so that you can go walk everything oh, wow. uh, nice. from, from start Todd, to Todd, I think what we should do is uh, build a miniature toy version of the Fort Wilderness Railroad, functioning steam toy version that, ha- <laughs> that has all of the same design issues so that your toy, your, your, your toy just falls apart and, re- and requires constant maintenance. That's right. In fact, it comes too tweaked out of the box. You you're, you're, you have kinks in your rail. You have to remove half of the, the bearings and stuff and replace all it. We'll just send them like new parts every, you know. You just get a new part to your kit every right. couple months if yeah. it goes bad. Like the Birch like Box or one of those yeah. things, except it's That's the Fort right. Wilderness Toy Box. And every yes. month you get a new part that you have to replace. There's some new gauge yeah, track. There's some sand that w- won't be porous enough. At the very yeah. end, you get a battery-operated train that won't <laughs> that go won't, all the way around. Yeah. It takes an hour to complete a loop. <laughs> and a little Dick Nunes figure hollering at it with a fist in the yeah, air. The, yeah. the fist. <laughs> oh, man. For those of interested in a real model of the Fort Wilderness Railroad, there is an actual train that operates on steam. The Carrollwood Pacific Railroad did get together with and partnered with a manufacturer a number of years ago and produced a replica steam engine. Um, there was, a, I believe, there was an electric version, and I know for sure there was an actual miniature G gauge. Which, if anybody is familiar with the the company LGB, the German trains are kind of large. Um, I believe it's 148 scale. But anyway, uh, they produced an actual live steam version of that where you fill it up with water and sterno to heat the water or whatnot. I don't know what fuel they use. Um, but that is out there, and they often sometimes come up for sale on eBay and, and uh, swaps, uh, train swaps and stuff. I, I know they weren't expensive. I think at the time, 10 years ago, they were between thirteen and $1,400 for the, for the actual train. But they're made out of metal and imprinted perfectly. So I'm like, really, that's really not expensive? <laughs> well, it was cheaper than replacing all the rail, right? Yeah. <laughs> so if you want to have one of those chugging around your tree, take a look. You never know when a collector will, will let one of those go. So... All right, guys. Well, let's move on. We've got a couple of the things to, to uh, talk about here. As always, we talk about our, our merchandise. And uh, and uh, I also want to, before we get into that, I want to thank everybody for the donations and stuff that we've received over the past couple months. I want to call out a couple thank yous specifically. Uh, Dan Bodenstein, Ryan Dalton, Sean DeWitt, David McCormick, Adam Hummel, and Steve Van. So thank you very much for sending in a, a donation to us, uh, helping us keep us on the air. And maybe some of you have noticed in the past couple months, our audio quality has started to, to go up. All of us are now uh, talking on brand new microphones. This is our third set of microphones we've had over the past couple of years working and doing this. And I, I think this is really where we're, we're going. Um, and uh, I think this is giving us the best audio quality possible. You should see us. We look like guys in, we, on this podcast here. We now all have our hanging microphones. We look, we look like uh, four... Four morning DJs hanging out in the, in the studio. We just need the on-air lights behind us, right? Yes. So so thank you to everybody who has donated or purchased something, uh, one of our T-shirts. Um, so with that said, how? T-shirts. You, you gave us a new one last month, uh, which was great as always. What was it? I, I, 
I don't even remember now. Oh, the Plaza Swambos. That's right. Gosh. God, that was That's a month right. ago. That's so funny. It's very elegant. Yeah, it, was... it is. It is. It's, and it's very old timey. It looks perfect for the 1800s. That, that is one that I've, since we've started the podcast, I wanted to do a Swambos t-shirt and then finally had the opportunity to do that. So yeah, look at that. Yeah. Look at that. Dreams too come true. <laughs> so how I, you got the Plaza Swambos. I know you, I'm sure you got another one in the hopper for us uh, for, for this month. A hopefully. couple. I have a couple couple in place. So you guys will have to see what happens next week when we when we edit and get it out. Because we're, I still have some Lake Buena Vista ones I want to do from our uh, from our hotel episode. Cool. There's some, some good ones of those. And uh, there's always a new idea just around the corner. So if you haven't followed us on Twitter uh, or Facebook, keep an eye out. We just had, uh, I think it ends in four hours here as we're speaking, but we had another fantastic four or five day sale of uh, 30% off all t-shirts. So all t-shirts were reduced down to 14 bucks and everything else, the, you know, the, the pillows and the, the, the notebooks, cell phone cases, um, stickers, everything was, was and we're going to, we're going to go completely reverse at Disney. We're going to get out of the t-shirt and trinket business and start telling jars of jelly. So (laughs) and antiques, (laughs) antiques and jars of jelly and clocks. That's right. But if you, if you seriously get one of our shirts, send us a, uh, a picture of you in the park, you know, I mean, that's just cool. Like, I mean, you don't have to put your face or anywhere. Yeah, 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 for sure. It's just cool to see, like, you know, if you're rocking the Plaza Swan Boats and you're down by the water, yeah. it's just like a sweet little it, product it, placement. It, it is, you know, we've been doing this show for years now. It is very, um, I don't know what the word is right now. I don't either. But the yeah, reaction when you run across a stranger wearing the shirts in the parks, like in the wild, like you're just circulating I- World Showcase or walking through animal kingdom and suddenly you see one of Hal's shirt designs there and you're like, Hey, uh, thanks for listening. I know the guy that designed yeah. that. <laughs> That's what yeah. I, yeah. I, in fact, I'm going to, I'm going to even go one step further. Next time I go down, I'm going to let people know. And if I see you in the park wearing one, I'm, I'm bringing a supply of retro WW pins. And if I see you wearing one, oh, I'll give you a pin. That'll so. be like, they, they, it's getting us more into the morning DJ thing where if you put our bumper sticker on your car, I'll, <laughs> Our, ca- exactly. our cash cab might stop you. And- <laughs> I'll, I'll wander the Epcot parking lot yes. looking for bumper stickers. <laughs> JT's out in the morning early. Uh, let's go into them. <laughs> but we do have some exciting news for everybody about next month. That's right. We are going to be taking a trip back in time. Yes, to the Hollywood that never was, but always will be. 1989. So we haven't exactly figured out where we've where we're going to land yet exactly in that park. Uh, But the last time we spoke about uh, the Disney MGM studios was when we did our opening day episode. And we, you know, we briefed on a lot of the major attractions for five to 10 minutes each, but it's time to uh, pick one or two of those attractions and really hone in on the history and what they were, especially since that park is going through a, a major transition right now. And obviously a lot of the attractions that were there on opening day, uh, if not, Almost all of them, I think, yes. other than Indiana Jones, now that I think about it, are gone. And if I remember uh, correctly, Indiana Jones didn't open opening day, right? Wasn't it? A few it days was in. Little, little it was delay. in, like, technical rehearsals. Right. The yeah, full, they, they the didn't full open show wasn't open, yeah. Wasn't open for a few days, so that's not technically an opening day attraction. A couple, couple of months, actually, more yeah. like. I, yeah. And I still can't believe it's still running, but I have a hunch that when all this stuff clears up after the 50th, it's going to get it's the still a good. <laughs> it's still a very good show. I mean, it's... All right. Well, on that note, everybody, I think it's uh, time to end this episode. Um, 
thank you to everybody for, for listening. And again, if you have any questions, comments, uh, concerns, or what have you, please send us at retro uh, podcast at retro WDW.com. Um, if you want to order any of our t-shirts, head over to retro WDW.com forward slash merchandise and right on our homepage, you can find a donate button. Um, and, uh, depending on your donation level, we do send out little gifts such as pins and autographs and all sorts of different things. Um, and not necessarily our autographs, but autographs of, of, uh, some additional people. So I don't know how many people really want our autographs, right guys? Yeah, I, don't know. <laughs> I don't know. We did sign a few at our event though. Um, yes. and speaking of events, keep your ears peeled on the next couple episodes. We hope to organize something coming up, uh, possibly in the November timeframe. Uh, so you may want to do so look for that. Listen for that. We might even eventually put out a, a mini episode in, in a month or two. Uh, explaining what we'll be doing so there's some uh, other news on the horizon that we'll talk about in the future as well so we're looking forward to bringing that to you so uh, once again thank you for taking a ride around the fort wilderness railroad and uh, we will see you next month and until then brian take us out follow todd mccartney and retro wdw on twitter instagram and facebook at retro wdw for all things Retro Disney World, including exclusive merchandise, visit us on the web at RetroWDW.com. On Twitter, follow our web designer, Jason Bartell of Deepwater Studios, at JasonDWS. Our announcer, Andre Gardner, at Andre Gardner. And follow our hosts, Hal Bowers, on Twitter and Instagram, at GoAwayGreen. And on the web, at KingdomOfMemories.com. For JT Couser on Twitter, at LS1JT on YouTube at Rubber City Motoring, and on the web at RubberCityMotoring.com. And you can find me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Brian P. Miles. And since we didn't read a letter from her this month, bye, Reese.